Our lesson of the day is from the epistle of James. I will read from chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. Here again, the Word of God. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word you have given to us. May you speak to us now through this word. And Father, may we not just hear the word, but may we do the word. May we put into practice the things that you teach us. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's interesting how Scripture not only addresses us as whole persons, but also speaks directly to different parts of who we are, even different body parts. Let me give you some examples of this. The Scriptures have a lot to say about our hands. We find a lot about our hands in the Scripture. The hand is a strength of symbol and power. Uh, we build and fight and work with our hands. God's right hand is a place of authority and rule. The hand represents various kinds of power. And so Paul commands the Thessalonians to work with their hands. He tells the Ephesians to do something useful with their hands. Men who are ordained to church office have hands laid on them as if those with office are transferring their authority to the one being ordained. And this transfer is happening through their hands. Through their hands, they create a pastor or an elder. Scripture condemns hands that shed innocent blood. Jesus said, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. But hands can also be used to bless. Jesus took the little children into his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. David prayed to the Lord, you train my hands for war and my fingers to fight. And whether there he's talking about weapons of warfare or musical instruments, either way, God's going to use his hands to do great things in the world. Scripture has a lot to say about our hands. Scripture instructs us how to use our hands. Think about another body part. Scripture has a lot to say about our ears and how we use them. Paul says faith comes from hearing the Word of God, hearing the Word of God preached. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Israel's famous confession of faith, begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Again and again, Scripture commands us to hear God's Word, to hear and to heed, to listen and to do. We've already seen that in James, a great deal about hearing. We're to listen carefully to God's Word. 
As Jesus said, if anyone has ears, let him hear. But then the Scripture also talks about those who have itching ears, who will only hear what they want to hear. The prophets again and again, too many times to number, condemned Israel for refusing to hear God's Word. Israel did not pay attention to the Word God spoke to them through the prophets. Proverbs shows us fools are those who refuse to hear correction. That's the mark of the fool in Proverbs. He will not hear. He will not listen to correction. While by contrast, Proverbs shows us the wise man's ear is open to God. He has his ear circumcised, you might say, like the priests who had their ears circumcised. Blood was put on the ear of the priest when he was ordained to show his hearing has been consecrated to God. In the book of Exodus, the homeborn slave has his ear pierced to show his ears now open to his master's voice. Jesus says we should be, James, again, as we've seen in this letter, has said that we should be quick to hear and slow to speak. Scripture has a lot to say about our ears and how we use them. Scripture has a lot to say about our feet. Uh, the Lord hates feet that run to evil in Proverbs chapter 6, but elsewhere in Proverbs we find uh, the feet of the adulteress go down to death. The fool cuts off his own feet. The flatterer spreads a net for his feet. But then the prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In Psalm 110, we find the Father is putting all things under Christ's feet and therefore under, under our feet as well. David says in Psalm 17, I have walked in your path, my feet have not slipped. In Psalm 119, he says to the Lord, hold back my feet from every evil way. He goes on to say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 123, familiar passage to us. The psalmist rejoices, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Paul has a great deal to, to say about our walk, which is really getting at the same kind of thing. Scripture tells us what to do with our feet. And we could keep going with this. Scripture addresses our hearts, our eyes, our faces, our bellies, our minds. All the major body parts are addressed directly by Scripture. So interesting, you could even build a whole ethic out of this, thinking about how Scripture commands different parts of our body, different aspects of who we are. I think Paul really summarizes this in Romans chapter 6 when he says that we have been baptized into Christ and so we have died to sin and been made alive to righteousness. And so he goes on to say we should offer the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Offer the members of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Of course, there's a, another part of the body that James addresses here in this passage. Scripture has a lot to say about our tongue. Or we could also say our mouth or our lips. The tongue is another part of the body addressed in Scripture, most famously right here in James chapter 3. We want to have Christian tongues. Tongues offered to God as instruments of righteousness. And James here shows us what that means. Indeed, James seems to indicate that of all the body parts, uh, James seems to identify the tongue as the most powerful and also the most dangerous. The tongue as the, the part of the body that is the most difficult to control. 
Now, what James has to say here is really uh, addressed to all Christians. It addresses the speech of all Christians. And I'm going to really focus on that next week and a little bit today as well. But at least at the beginning of this section, he is especially focused on the tongue of the Christian teacher or the pastor. So this is one of those sermons the pastor has to preach to himself first because it's really about the pastor. You'll see how it applies to all of us in the body of Christ, but James is especially singling out those who teach or pastor, those who preach in the body of Christ. James is especially instructing those responsible for teaching in the church, those with a teaching ministry. In fact, I would say really the whole letter of James seems to be directed to church leadership. Uh, I think James, as a letter, really has a lot in common with what we call the pastoral epistles. Those epistles, those letters that Paul wrote to leaders in the church, to pastors like Timothy and Titus. James really strikes me as another pastoral letter uh, of sorts. Look at what he says right here at the beginning of the chapter. He says, my brothers... Let not many of you become teachers, for we shall receive a stricter judgment. Uh, These teachers are obviously those who have both a gift and an office in the church. They've been called to some kind of official teaching ministry. And I, I just want to point this out. I think it's important to understand. The church from the very beginning had an organizational structure a polity, a government. That's not something that came in generations later. It's not as if the church was an egalitarian free-for-all from the beginning and then later certain church orders and a, and a structure were added in. Now you see, from the very beginning, there's, there's a structure, there's a government, there are officers in the church from the very beginning. And really all of this, this, this polity, this government is inherited from Israel. And it's transformed in various ways, but it's something that the church brings over from the Old Covenant into the new. And those who hold church office, those who are ordained into church leadership, those who are officially recognized as teachers are accountable. They're held to a higher standard, James says here. And if you think about it, that makes sense. If you're not a teacher in the church and you hold to uh, some error, well, you only harm yourself with that error. But if you are a teacher and you hold to an error, an erroneous belief. But what's going to happen? You're going to end, end, end up infecting all of those people you teach. Your error is going to spread. And that's why James says this is so critical, it's such a big deal. That's why James gives this warning. We who teach shall receive the stricter judgment. We are responsible for teaching and we must do so in a responsible way and we will give an account for the words we have spoken as teachers. I will give an account for every word I've said from this pulpit, for every sermon I've preached. I'll have to answer for it. And I think James here is talking primarily about sermons, about the public teaching ministry of the church. James shows teaching in the church cannot be taken lightly. It must be done with care, with wisdom, with precision. Preachers and teachers who play fast and loose with God's Word, who pick and choose, who think that they can just ignore certain parts of uh, of God's Word, who twist God's Word or even contradict God's Word in their teaching, will be held accountable. They will be judged. Teachers in the church will be judged by how faithfully they have handled God's Word. James is putting the church's teaching ministry 
you could say, in an eschatological context. He's looking at the teaching ministry in light of the final judgment. He's saying there is going to be a final reckoning where we will give an account for every word. Yes, every Christian will give an account for every word, but teachers especially, teachers in the church, will be judged more strictly. I think by talking here about the final judgment, he's really continuing the theme of James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is talking about this final judgment and what will be justified or condemned at the last day. Here James is admonishing other teachers in light of that final day, that coming day of judgment. And James is showing us our eternal destiny hinges on how we live. That was really his theme in James chapter 2. Your eternal destiny hinges not just on what you believe, but on how you live. We're all going to be judged by our works, and that includes our words. And for teachers, that includes a very strict evaluation of their words. And again, this is just the teaching of Scripture again and again. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus refuses salvation to workers of iniquity. They might, they might have even done miracles in His name, but He turns them away. He casts them away from His presence because they practiced iniquity. In James chapter 2, we've seen, James tells us, a faith that does not produce deeds will not save. It will not justify at the last day. And now he applies that truth specifically to leaders in the church. The church's leaders must demonstrate their faith by their words, by how they teach. Those who have been entrusted with a teaching ministry in the church will have to answer for it. There's a big responsibility. There's big accountability that comes with it. Just think about how strictly Jesus judged the teachers of Israel during his earthly ministry. If you want a little preview of what's going to happen on Judgment Day for those who are teachers in Christ's church, think about how Jesus treated teachers in the church during his earthly ministry. He said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Matthew chapter 23, he curses them time after time because of their unfaithfulness in this office that they've entered into, this office of teaching. Jesus condemned them because their teaching did not draw people towards Him and towards the kingdom. No, their teaching turned people away from the kingdom. He said, oh, they sit in Moses' seat, but they don't teach what Moses taught. They like having the title rabbi. They like the respect that comes with the office, but they misuse their authority. They twist Scripture to suit their own self-righteous purposes. And it's not just the Pharisees who did that. There are many teachers throughout the history of the church right down to the present who do the same. Twisting Scripture to suit their own purposes instead of teaching and proclaiming faithfully the whole counsel of God. Think how harshly false teachers are described elsewhere in the New Testament. In 2 Peter, Peter gives a scathing review of false teachers who have crept into the church. Just a few little tidbits. There's a whole chapter almost devoted to the, the, the folly of these false teachers and what is coming for them. He says there are false prophets who bring in destructive heresies and promote blasphemies. Peter says they will be destroyed because they have gone astray. He says they are waterless springs, misdriven to and fro by the storm. He says for them the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved. It's as if Peter's saying the hottest places in hell are reserved for those teachers who abuse their teaching office and their authority by not teaching according to God's Word. He says they're like dogs returning to their own vomit. Everything they teach is like a dog's vomit. 
It's not health-giving or nourishing. It's just vomit. The harshest words in all of Scripture are directed at teachers in the church who would lead the flock astray. Now go back to James chapter 3. He says in verse 1, not many of you should presume to, to become teachers. That's a warning to pastors and would-be pastors to consider carefully this charge entrusted to you that you'll be judged more strictly for the things you've taught. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, for we all stumble in many things, in many ways. That is to say, we're all sinners. James is realistic. We're, no, nobody is uh, completely uh, done with sin in this life. But then he goes on, he says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Or as we have seen before in James, that word perfect really means mature. So he's a perfect man. He is a mature man. And if he does not stumble in word, he is able to bridle the whole body. Now, I think the body here is probably the body of Christ. Teachers are the mouth of the body of Christ. Teachers are the lips and tongue of the body of Christ. But as such, they've got incredible influence over the rest of the body, what happens to the rest of the body. And so really what verse 2 means is this. The man who is mature in his speech is able to direct the whole body, the congregation, with his words because his words are wise, persuasive, and influential. They are words of truth and love and life and lights. And so they shape and direct the whole body. Leaders can, can direct the whole congregation by their teaching. Leaders lead largely by talking. Leadership happens largely through speech. The church is really all about speech. The church is really all about the written and especially the spoken word. Think about this. What have we been doing all morning here? What do Christians come together to do? We come together to talk that's really all we've been doing this morning. There's a few other things, standing, kneeling, sitting. But when Christians come together, this is what we do. We talk. There's talking back and forth. There's a kind of liturgical conversation, a kind of dialogue that goes on when Christians gather. There's singing, there's praying, of course there's reading and now preaching. There's a give and take of words. God speaks and we respond. And how do we respond? We respond by speaking back. We spoke, we speak to God because we've been spoken to. The whole of the church's life is taken up in this exchange of words. The heart of the church's life is a dialogue between God and the people, or God's representative and the people. Our and this is really how all of life is, in a way. It's concentrated here, but it happens all throughout life. Our relationships with God and with one another are largely structured by the words that are spoken between us. If we don't speak, we really don't have much of a relationship. There's got to be some kind of communication. The power of the church is largely found in the words it speaks. Martin Luther said the church is above all a mouth house. The, 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 the body of Christ speaks. It's how we do things. But I think James gives this warning specifically because of the context that uh, the, the, the people he is writing to find themselves in. Remember, he's writing to these scattered Jewish Christians. They've, they've scattered out from Jerusalem because of the persecution. And guess what? The persecution has followed them. And so they are facing grave danger. 
And in that context, you know, that's the original context of this letter, in that context where these Jewish Christians are being persecuted, especially by fellow Jews, they face particular temptations and their teachers face particular temptations. Their teachers are tempted to encourage them to give in to their anger, to strike back, to fight back. Some are probably encouraging them to even go on the offensive. Don't wait for those unbelieving Jews to come to you. We've got the Messiah on our side. Let's strike first. A kind of preemptive violence even. In James 1, verse 19, he says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Well, why would they be getting angry? They'd be getting angry because they're being persecuted. And when he says, be slow to speak, slow to anger, it seems he's especially he's especially has in view angry speech. That's what he wants them to avoid. Be slow to anger. Don't let your speech reflect anger. And of course, he goes on. He says there uh, that this anger of man, the angry words of man cannot accomplish the righteousness of God. You're not going to further God's kingdom through your anger. Understand, angry preaching and teaching doesn't promote God's kingdom. Anger is not the right response to persecution. Angry words that would incite God's people to violence are not the right response. Sermons that devolve into angry tirades against our enemies don't help. Sermons that curse our persecutors or our would-be persecutors don't solve anything. I have to say, there's a lot of preaching like that in the church today too, where it's just anger aimed at the church's enemies. And that really doesn't do any good. That kind of angry preaching about our enemies. That doesn't further the mission of the church. It doesn't advance God's kingdom in any kind of way. But you see that today. There are certain pastors and teachers in the church who say, you know what? Uh, the, 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 the gays are the enemy of the church. And so we're going to attack them in anger in our sermons. Well, that doesn't do it. That does not help the situation. It doesn't further the ministry of the church. Again, we see what God wants from His church, particularly from the church's leadership, is wise, mature, measured speech. Not swift, immature, angry speech. Not foolish in that way. Notice here too how James shows us the power of the spoken word, especially the power of the sermon. I'm going to talk about the power of speech more next week, but even here we see it. What is taught in the church will largely shape how people think and act. What is taught in the church impacts people's lives for better or for worse. But you cannot listen to a sermon and remain the same. You don't listen to a sermon in a neutral kind of way. Because of the way I preach and because of the way you hear, we're all being changed for better or for worse. If the sermon's faithful and you listen to it with an open heart, good things happen. If the sermon's not faithful or if it is faithful and you close your heart to it, bad things happen. But there's always some kind of transformation or deformation taking place through the church's teaching ministry. James then begins to develop more general points about our speech. Teaching in the church is still in view, I, I think. Uh, but these principles apply to every Christian, to all of our speech. In fact, this is really unpacking a basic principle he again gave back in chapter 1, verse 26. Back in chapter 1, verse 26, he said, If any among you thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. 
In other words, if you don't control your speech, if you don't control your tongue, your religion is in vain. Because your speech, your words, are a window onto your heart. We even saw that in Matthew chapter 12, the Gospel reading this morning. The words we speak flow out of our hearts. It's good fruit or it's bad fruit. Good fruit that brings blessing and leads to salvation or bad fruit that will end in condemnation. And Jesus even ends that passage saying, by your words you will be justified or condemned. Our words will be used as evidence that we are right with God or that we're out of fellowship with God at the last day. James here unpacks the point by using two analogies and then a third. Two analogies that he gives right away to further explain the point. A small bit in the mouth of a large horse that allows us to direct the animal where we want it to go. You can steer the whole body of the horse with just that small little bit. Horse, a large animal, but controlled by something very small. And then a small rudder that can direct a large ship even when it faces stiff winds like the storm of persecution. That little rudder steers the whole ship even through a fierce storm. Herman Nelville picked on picked up on this, he said, the pulpit is the prow of the Word. That what is preached from the Word of God, the pulpit's a small thing, the tongue is a small thing, but it has great power. And that's really the conclusion that James draws, the obvious conclusion. It says, even so, the tongue is a little member, yet boasts great things. The tongue is small, but it has great power. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it does great things, it has great power. And then James adds that third illustration. He says, just as a small spark can kindle a huge forest fire, so it is when the with the tongue. See, when we talk, when we speak, sparks fly. James wants you to see, talking is dangerous the same way playing with matches is dangerous. Talking is dangerous. Now, James here could still be talking about pastors. And in that case, in these illustrations, the pastor would be the bit, the rudder, the spark. The church would be the body, the ship, the force. I think that may be what he is doing here. And again, the point would be a reckless pastor can wreck a church. He's only one member, but his words can destroy the whole thing. It can send the whole church off course if he's not careful in what he says. But again, it's not hard to see how this extends to every one of us, to every Christian, it applies to all of us, to all of our relationships, to all of our talk, to all of our speech. Careless words for any of us can cause all kinds of trouble. Evil words, ill-timed words, poorly chosen words, unkind words can bring disaster. We'll talk more about that next week as we go further in this passage. But I want to continue here into verse 6 because James, he started to use this illustration of talking as um, like a spark starting a forest fire. But he builds on that illustration. It builds momentum here. He goes on in verse 6. He says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. A lot of our talking is just arson. We're just setting these destructive fires all around. This is how James describes the destructive power of an out-of-control tongue. Corrupt speech, sinful speech, unleashes the forces of hell. Corrupt speech unleashes the fire of hell. The tongue can turn hellfire loose. 
The tongue has got great power. So much power it can control other people. It can control the whole body. It can control a whole community. But often it cannot control itself. And so it causes incalculable damage. This is what James says about our tongue. If the tongue is a fire set on fire by hell itself, you might wonder, well, is there any hope for our speech? Or is this just the way it is? James goes on to say that uh, that no man can fully control the tongue. Is there no hope for us? Well, yes, there is hope. But to see that hope, we've got to take in the whole panorama of Scripture, the whole, whole panoramic view of the Bible uh, to really see this. You know, this is the most famous passage about the tongue uh, in Scripture, but what's the most famous speech story in the Bible? Well, of course, it is the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11. And I want you to think this through. At that point in Genesis chapter 11, the human race is one, only it's one in rebellion against God. Humans are united, but they are united in idolatry. They come together when God has told them to, to fan out. God has said to multiply and fill the earth, but instead they gather together in one place. And they come together, Genesis 11 shows us, in a false confession of faith. And they've come together to make an idol, a false temple that will reach into the heavens. As if humanity has come together to say, we're going to storm heaven and take it over. Literally, Genesis says they were of one lip. It means they had one religion, and it was a false religion. They had one confession, but it was a false confession. That same language of lip is used all throughout the rest of the Old Testament to describe a religious confession. So yes, they have a shared confession of faith. They speak the same thing in the same language, but it's a false religion, an idolatrous religion. So what happens? Well, they are building this tower, and God comes down. Is it that... <laughs> Kind of humorous, kind of ironic. They're trying to build this great big tower to the heavens, but God has to come down just to get a good look at it. God comes down and He sees their idolatrous tower and so He judges them. He confuses their lip or their language. And of course, this causes them to scatter out into various people groups, various nations. They begin to fill the earth as God commanded. That one United humanity fans out into the 70 nations recorded in the table of nations in the book of Genesis. God confused their language so they no longer shared one lip. Their lips were still corrupt. Their lips were still idolatrous, but they weren't united in their idolatry anymore. But there's good news. What God did at Babel, God will also reverse that judgment will give way to salvation. The good news is God promises to restore our lips, to restore our language, our speech, to unify us, but to unify us in the truth and in true speech. And you get hints of this along the way in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet confesses, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's not just that their speech was corrupt and unkind and they gossiped and lied. It's that they were saying false things about God. They were committing idolatry with their mouths. And Isaiah is confessing this about himself and about the nation of Israel. But what happens when Isaiah's vision as he sees the glory of God high and exalted, the, the glory of the Lord lifted up, one of the seraphim, this angelic being, 
takes a live coal from the altar fire and touches his mouth with it and says to Isaiah, your iniquity is taken away. Your sins of speech are forgiven. Your sinful lips are cleansed. And from that point on, what is Isaiah going to do? You see it in the rest of the chapter. God says, who shall I send to teach the people? Isaiah says, send me, I'll go. From this point on, Isaiah's lips will speak truth. His mouth will become an instrument of truth because the coal from the altar fire touched his lips. Zephaniah 3.9 promises a reversal of that. Well, God promises He will restore the peoples to a pure lip. He will restore their faith and their speech. And of course, there are many examples of this kind of prophecy in the Old Testament. But it all comes to fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down from above. And how does the Holy Spirit descend upon the church? The Holy Spirit comes down as fire from above. And indeed, tongues of fire come to rest above the heads of the disciples who will go on to preach God's Word in every different language. In every language under heaven. Tongues of fire Each disciple given a tongue of fire to speak God's truth, to preach the Gospel in a different language. Tongues of fire. Now, Acts shows us tongues of fire, but here James talks about tongues of fire as well. You've got James' tongues of fire set on fire by hell, and you've got Acts' tongues of fire. Fire of the Holy Spirit. Understand this. Our mouth our tongue, our lips, I mean, however you want to describe it, however you want to describe the speaking part of the body, our mouth, our tongue, our lips will always be on fire. Your mouth is always on fire. The only question is, what kind of fire and where did it come from? Are you on fire? Is your mouth on fire with fire from above or from below? Your lips are on fire. Is it fire from heaven or from hell? In the very next section in James chapter 3, James is going to contrast wisdom that comes from above with wisdom that comes from below. Heavenly wisdom versus satanic wisdom. The wisdom of heaven versus the wisdom of hell. So it is here. There is a fire from above, the fire of God's Spirit, purifying our speech, giving us tongues of fire to proclaim the Gospel, to speak the truth in love. Even as Jeremiah the prophet said he had the fire of God's Word in his bones. This is a fire that transforms, that heals, that purifies, that brings light and and life. But there's also a fire from below. The fires of hell. The fire that destroys relationships. The fire that destroys churches. The fire that, that, that twists and distorts the teaching of God's Word. The fire that misleads. The fire that lies. The fire that would burn up the very Word of God if it could and destroy it if possible. Will your tongue burn with Pentecostal fire? With the fire of the Holy Spirit? Or with the fire of hell itself? Which is it going to be? Your mouth's going to be on fire. What kind of fire will it be? Will your tongue be used for good or for evil? Will you spread spiritual fire or hell fire? There is no question, as James said, it is difficult to tame the tongue. 
to bridle our speech, to season our speech with the salt of God's wisdom, to speak truly and to speak lovingly. But by the power of God's Spirit, we can do it. I trust we are doing it. That the coal from the altar fire has touched our lips. That our sins of speech have been forgiven. That the way we use our mouths, that the way we talk and speak to one another is being transformed. Understand, God made your mouth, God made your tongue to praise Him, to bless your neighbor. He made your tongue to be a force for goodness and truth, to spread beauty and love and kindness in the world. The fire of God's Spirit is upon you and in you to enable you to speak the truth in love. The fire of God's Spirit is in your mouth. You know, Job made a covenant with his eyes to look on no vile thing. I'd urge you to make a, that covenant, certainly, but also make a covenant with your tongue to only speak words of truth and love. This is what God calls us to, to speak not with tongues that are set on fire by hell, to not spread hellfire with our speech, but to speak with that Pentecostal fire to spread spiritual fire, to, to pour out the, the, the flame of God's truth, God's love, God's righteousness with our words. That's what we're called. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would help us to speak to one another even as Jesus speaks to us. Words of love and truth, of grace and wisdom. May our tongues and indeed our whole bodies be devoted to Your service. May we offer to You our tongues, our mouths, our lips as instruments of righteousness, Father, would we burn with the fire of the Spirit, with that flame of, of, of the Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost, the tongue of flame. Father, may that characterize our speech with one another in everything we do. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.